0: From the inside out, our praises cry out to the Lord. What a beautiful way to transition to the Sermon on the Mount, which speaks about a religion that comes from within and manifests itself on the outside. A religion that is not content just to show off piety, just to have a superficial an outward religion, but a religion that comes from the transformation of the heart. Well, last week we began a new series on the Sermon on the Mount. We looked at, last week, at, the, at an overview of the sermon, and we found, found that an overall theme of the Sermon on the Mount is the Kingdom of Heaven. And if you remember, those of you who are here and those who are not, who are not just a way to brief you in, in what we did last week. We said that the kingdom of heaven is not simply heaven, but refers to the reign of God. And we also found out an overall challenge of the sermon, namely to examine our religion and to make sure that it is real. Jesus gives a big warning against religious hypocrisy and show off piety. None of these are sufficient, none of these are enough for God's kingdom. So Jesus is describing to us what constitutes true belonging to the kingdom of heaven. And we also said last week that the Sermon on the Mount is not a recipe of how to get to heaven, but a description of how to live out the kingdom of heaven here on earth. Those who already belong to the kingdom of heaven by the grace of God, how do they live life here on earth? And that's why the Title of the sermon series on the Sermon on the Mount is Living on Earth, the Kingdom of Heaven. Today we start looking at the smaller parts of the sermon and we begin today with, with the introduction. I encourage you to open scripture to Matthew chapter 5. We'll be reading from verse 1 to verse 16. Matthew chapter 5, verse 1 through 16. If you are using a pew Bible, uh, you may find that passage on page 838, 838. The word of the Lord for us this morning is the following. Now when he saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, Because great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled by men. You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before men, that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. Amen. Let's pray for our hearts and for this word this morning. Father, we thank you that you have given us a picture of the values of the kingdom of heaven. And thank you that you have made it possible for us to start living them out. Father, this morning, the desire of our heart is that we would adopt, we would see these values as our values. Lord, we pray these things in the name of Jesus. For his glory and honor. Amen. Well, the Sermon on the Mount begins with a list of blessings. They are the blessings of the kingdom of heaven. They are the values of the kingdom of heaven. They tell us what is really important in the kingdom of heaven. Now remember... The definition we said and we gave last week and I reminded us this morning, the kingdom of heaven does not simply mean heaven. It means the reign of God. So this morning we see a blessing, a list of blessings of the reign of God, what it means to live under the reign of God. And also this morning we will see in this introduction to the Sermon on the Mount a description of who are the witnesses of the kingdom of heaven who are the key witnesses of the reign of God on earth. It's the disciples. And this morning, as we look at this introduction to the Sermon on the Mount, this entire sermon will be a sermon on the introduction on the Sermon on the Mount. I would like to take a look at two things. The values of the kingdom and the witnesses of the kingdom. When we look at the values of the kingdom of heaven and at the list that we have before us, Every one of these blessings could make an entire sermon. Because the reality is all of these blessings are things that have been sown into the Old Testament. Jesus now declares and says, here they are. And now they are seen and echoed again in the rest of the New Testament in the epistles. So every one of these could be be its own sermon. But we will not do that today. We will not do that in the sermon series it's very customary for preachers who preach on Matthew 5 to do this, but today I would like to take a holistic look at, at the entire list and then move on to, to the values and to the witness of the kingdom. Now, for those of you who are not familiar with this text, if you did not grow up in church and are, are not familiar with this list of, of so-called blessings, uh, this text is also known as the Beatitudes. Uh, the word Beatitude comes from the Latin... Uh, adjective beatus which uh, literally means happy fortunate or blissful but even the word in latin comes from the greek word makarios which means uh, to be fortunate or happy to be favored or to be privileged these are the the words of of of, of or the meanings of the word makarios which we have today as blessed. Now, in a in a more vernacular, current uh, definition of this word, we you might we might really use it and say the people who are well off. Who is the well off in the kingdom of heaven? Who are the really privileged of the society of the kingdom of heaven? Who are the highly favored? You know, in a in a very non-religious term and it might sound offensive to some that we would even use this word in church. but who are the lucky people of the kingdom of heaven? We, we have to understand the meaning of this word blessed and, and the powerful idea that it has. Who are the fortunate? Who would you consider that are, are fortunate in the kingdom of heaven? Now, as you, as you prepare to, to listen to this list, I want you to think about it first. Make a personal list. Who would you consider fortunate? Who would you consider lucky? Who would you consider blessed? And my hope is that we would be comparing notes with your list and my list. We're comparing all our lists together with the list that Jesus gave us. Of who is considered blessed in the kingdom of heaven. According to Scripture, the essence of being blessed is not necessarily to have material possessions. And bingo, that's our first counterintuitive impression of what it means to be blessed. Even for today, Christians, when we think of being blessed, the most, the most immediate thing that we would typically think of is God has provided for us for all our needs, more than we need. We're really blessed. But the first thing we realize is Scripture does not talk about being blessed necessarily as having material possessions. As a matter of fact, the very first list, the very first item on this list, listen how it starts. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for there is the kingdom of heaven. The very first words of this list seem a paradox, especially to us in modern 21st century America. Blessed are the poor in spirit, This is very counterintuitive. We have a hard time putting together the words blessing and poor in the same sentence, let alone at the head of a list of blessings. Now, to be poor in spirit, first of all, Jesus does not say simply to be poor. He does say to be poor in spirit. To be poor in spirit does not mean um, to lack the Holy Spirit or to be inferior uh, spiritually. One, as, as one New Testament professor said, poverty of spirit is the personal acknowledgement of spiritual bankruptcy. It is the conscious confession of unworth before God. And as such, it is the deepest form of repentance actually acknowledging our spiritual bankruptcy is one of the first requirements to become a Christian. In order to begin a relationship with Christ, a true relationship with Christ, not just a nominal relationship with Christ, but a true relationship with Christ, we need to have the sense of being broken and of being broke spiritually before God. We need to come to the realization that we have nothing to bring to God except our wretchedness. But being poor in spirit is not just an entry point to the Christian life. It is the daily experience of the believer. And the shocking statement of the Sermon on the Mount is that even those who have been Christians for a while do not move up. They do not get a promotion from this blessing. At least it's not supposed to. To be poor in spirit means... That we come before God acknowledging that we do not have the resources to live out the ways of God. And we need to do that daily. We need to come to Him and say, God, if if You don't give us Your righteousness, if You don't give us Your Spirit, if You don't come with us, there's no way we can live out the Christian life. To be poor in spirit is to acknowledge our lack of worth our inability, our lack of resources before God. Friends, we live in a society that does not value helplessness or poverty. We worship the idols of independence, of materialism, of maximum self-potential and self-esteem. And we shun away from feelings of inadequacy or inferiority. And we're tempted to bring these assumptions into our spirituality as well. We love to talk about the abundant life Jesus gives us. And I want to say, yes, Jesus does promise to give us an abundant life. But we can only experience an abundant life when we maintain a sense of being poor in spirit. You see, an abundant life, an abundant spiritual life, and a poverty of spirit are not contradictory in the words of Jesus. John Piper, one of the well-known preachers uh, today in America... In his early ministry, he preached at a student conference, and he, he remembered in a Q&A time, a question and answer time, somebody in the audience asked him, Pastor, isn't Christianity a crutch for people? He paused and confidently responded, Yes, it is we do not have the resources on our own to be right with God. And unless we get a crutch, unless we get some help, we cannot make it right with God. Dear friends, this is the first blessing on the list of the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for there is the kingdom of heaven. Then look at the number, the second one, and I, I don't have time to go in detail, in all the details for each of them, But I'll just be making some some brief remarks on all of them and then look at them holistically. The second one, verse 4, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Now in a culture that values entertainment and laughter, in a culture that shuns away from any form of mourning or weeping, this blessing is very challenging to hear. Scripture does tell us Blessed are those who mourn. It's a blessing to mourn. Now, this text does not tell us for what reasons we should mourn. However, if we read this in the context of what just went earlier and what is going to come after, I do think that mourning is connecting with realizing our spiritual bankruptcy. It is mourning over personal sin and our sinfulness. We mourn because we realize that we are nothing apart from Christ. Even those of us who have been Christians for a long time. When we continue to fall into the same patterns of sin. When we fail to see any progress and any growth in our spiritual lives. When we have hurt another brother. Or when we dishonor the name of God because of our behavior. All of these reasons and many others should cause us to mourn. And we can also mourn when we see the effects of sin in the lives of other people when we see a Christian family go through divorce, we should mourn because sin has prevailed in that marriage. The Apostle Paul rebukes the church in Corinth for failing to mourn for a public and unrepentant sin of an immoral man. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5:2, he tells this church, you have become arrogant and have not mourned instead. So that The one who had done this deed would be removed from your midst. In other words, we should mourn when we see sin in our own lives and when we see sin in the lives of others. We should be concerned. We should mourn. We should mourn when we see injustice and corruption in the world. We should mourn when the power of the wicked oppress the righteous. We should mourn also when we see nature being overtaken by the effects of sin. We should mourn and ask, Lord, how long? How long will rain still ha- will sin still have its rain and effect on us, on our lives, on our community, on nature, on society? Friends, the comfort of God in the midst of our mourning is a greater blessing than avoiding to mourn. Do you realize that? As much as our society teaches us and tells us Don't worry, don't mourn, don't weep, man up, don't cry. It is a greater blessing to be comforted by the Lord in the midst of our mourning than to avoid to mourn. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Now look at verse 5. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. We don't use the word meek very much today. The meaning uh, of this word in the Greek language is, is, is simply the following. Not to be overly impressed by a sense of one's self-importance. Not to be overly impressed by a sense of one's self-importance. It also means to be gentle, or to be humble, or to be considerate. Now, friends... To be gentle and humble is not a sign of weakness. As some would suggest today. Quite the opposite. To be gentle and humble is to have the strength to see the interests of others advance above your own. Only strong people can do that. The promise of of inheriting the earth. This is an interesting blessing unlike the others. Because if you compare it with what you get instead, it seems like these these folks will inherit the earth while others will inherit heaven. I want you to to realize this is not an opposition of, well, some will inherit the earth, some will inherit heaven. Uh, Quite the opposite. This phrase comes from Psalm 33, verse 11. If you want to look up that psalm, it's a great psalm to meditate on. But that promise is given in a context where God promises that he will destroy the wicked at the end of the age. And one way to describe the victory of God over evil is to say that the meek shall inherit the earth. This blessing should not give us reasons to be greedy or to grow in our materialism. Quite the opposite. It's a promise that says, Those who are meek, those who are gentle, those who live under the reign of God and put the interests of others above their own, those who are gentle, they will experience the victory of God over the wicked, over the evil one. And the images, they will inherit the earth. Again, humility is not the way to get to heaven, but it's a sign of those in whom the reign of God is real. Now look at verse 6. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. In a world that prizes having more and seeking to be satisfied and having enough resources, it's a surprise to hear that God considers it a blessing when we live our daily lives with a sense of hunger and thirst for righteousness. Now, righteousness here does not mean flawlessness at least not for Matthew. Uh, righteousness means a pattern of life in conformity to God's will. Now, pursuing righteousness is not very popular today. Not even among Christians. Many Christians would prefer to seek real peace, real happiness, real joy. They would s- rather seek spiritual experiences, but not righteousness some when they hear this phrase seeking righteousness immediately jump at the objection that it sounds like legalism or they immediately say you can never be perfect on this earth so they they put the seek this desire they put it aside friends it's not whether or not you can achieve righteousness on this earth whether or not we hunger and thirst for it. And the question I have for us and for for you this morning is, do we use the objection of not being able to achieve perfection as an excuse for not seeking righteousness? And whatever you think about perfection, whether or not we can achieve it on this earth, Jesus does say, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. There's a promise of being satisfied with it. Now notice the imagery Jesus uses to illustrate the intensity of how we should seek for this righteousness. We should hunger and thirst. Friends, this is not the kind of attitude, well, if it fits in my schedule, I'll do it. If it fits with everything I got going on this week, I'll do it. Have you seen hungry people? Have you seen thirsty people? Some of you allow yourself to go hungry or thirsty for a while just because you're so overworked. And you skip a lunch, and you skip another meal. But eventually, when that hunger is just boiling up in you, what do you do? You put everything aside and go and grab a bite to eat. You put everything aside, and you go and get a cup of, of water, something to drink because you just cannot handle your thirst. Friends, Jesus is using this imagery of thirst and hunger to to show the kind of intensity we, the people of the kingdom, should have for righteousness. And I wonder this morning, do such attitudes describe our desires for righteousness? I wonder this morning, for some of us, do you see the pursuit of righteousness as a blessing or do you see it as a detour from pursuing your life goals? Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Then look at verse 7. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. I've got to give a caution here. This blessing is not a trade-off. In the sense of if we will be merciful, God will be merciful to us. As if, if we will be merciful, we'll buy some of God's mercy. Quite the opposite. Remember what I said, this sermon is not for non-believers. This sermon assumes that those who are hearing it are already followers of Christ. So, the sermon assumes that those who are merciful, are merciful because they have already received mercy. And in doing so, in, in, because they have received mercy, they are able to show mercy to others, and in doing so, The mercy they have once received is now displayed once again to them in their own act of showing mercy. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Then verse 8, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. I wish I could stay here and camp out at this one because there's a sense in which this is the heart of Christianity. In order to see God, We need a clean heart. But we're born with an evil heart. With a heart that is bent on rebelling against God. How do we clean up the heart? How do we clean up that which Jesus declared to be the source of evil thoughts? Let me remind you, Jesus' words in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 7, verse 21 to 23, he says, For from within... Out of the heart of men proceed the evil thoughts, fornications, thefts, murders, adulteries, deeds of coveting and wickedness, as well as deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. All these things proceed from within and defile man. This was Jesus' impression of the heart. We do have a heart problem. And the only remedy for it is if God gives us a new heart. Even in the Old Testament, God promised to give Israel a new heart because their heart of stone proved to be ineffective in following the laws of God. Ezekiel 36:26, God says, Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you and will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And then verse 29, God says, And I will save you from all your uncleanness. So when Jesus says in in Matthew 5, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. He is saying the promises of the Old Testament have come true. Now he's announcing that in Christ, the purity of heart is finally possible. Blessed are the pure in heart. Friends, To clean out our hearts, we cannot call up Mary Maid. We cannot even do it ourselves, even if you wanted to do it. You can't. I cannot. The only way to experience a cleansing of the heart is if God does it for us. And when we declare our spiritual bankruptcy, that we have no resources, not even the power to cleanse our lives when we declare our spiritual bankruptcy, when we mourn for our sins, and when we hunger for His righteousness, God gives us a new life. Friend, if you're here this morning and you have never experienced a spiritual heart transplant of receiving a new heart from God, a new spirit from God that will make you, in reality, in, in all truthfulness, a child of God, not just by name, but by nature, I want to give you the following warning. The only chance of seeing God and not be destroyed by Him is if you ask from Him for a new heart. And you can do so this morning by repenting of your sin and trusting that Christ died in your place on the cross to pay the penalty of your sins and so that He could give you a new life instead. A life that is governed by the rules of God, by the presence of God, by the kingdom of God. And if you would like to know more about this new life, I would love to talk to you at the end of the service. But for those of us who are Christians, who have made this surrender to God, dear brothers and sisters, the clean heart is not just an act of conversion, but a reality that we should seek out daily. We should pray daily with a psalmist. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Beloved, this is the cry of those who live under the reign of God day in and day out. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Then verse 9, blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. Now, this is not a blessing for the peaceful. This is not a blessing for those who prefer peace. This is a blessing for those who make peace, for those who are peacemakers. Now, in Scripture, the greatest peacemaker is Jesus Christ. He is the King of Peace. He is the Prince of Peace. He came to make peace between us and God by removing our sin and bringing us into a right relationship with God. And God calls us to also be peacemakers. Not only to declare peace with God to other people, but also to declare peace with other fellow people. That's why one of the greatest places, one of the greatest areas where the peace of God is displayed in our lives and we show that we are peacemakers is in the local church. The local church is the first forum where the peace of God, the peace that believers ought to make with one another is displayed in the life of the local congregation. Paul says in Ephesians 4.3, keep the unity of the spirit through the bond of peace. Now, while peacemaking is first and foremost displayed among each other in the local church, this peacemaking should extend to everyone outside the church as well. In our families, in our workplace, in our neighborhoods, in our city, and in our country. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. And finally, the last blessing. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven we reach one of the blessings that most of us have never experienced. To be persecuted because of righteousness. It is the only blessing that Jesus devotes more time to explain. He says they're blessed not only because they have the kingdom of heaven, but because they share the same treatment as the prophets. Now Jesus ends with this last blessing, and I don't think it's coincidental that it's the last on this list. Living out the kingdom of heaven on earth, will give rise to opposition from the world. And notice these are blessings of the kingdom of heaven. Both the first and the last blessing refer to the kingdom of heaven. And this is like a, an inclusio. It's not like the rest of the blessings don't refer to the kingdom of heaven. It's like the first and the last, they're, they're a bookend. And in, in, in the Greek language, when this is happening, it says that everything in between refers to the, the big theme of, of, the, of what's at the bookends. So all these blessings are the blessings of the kingdom of heaven. Notice these blessings are not to be considered separate but interconnected. You can't be poor in spirit without being hungry or thirsty for righteousness. You can't be merciful without being a peacemaker. Now I would say the only one that's not part of this mandatory list of interconnection is the blessing of persecution. There are times when Christians are persecuted and there are many times when they're not. But, for even for us here in the West, those who are not yet persecuted, when persecution shall come, Jesus says, blessed are you. Now, friends, we cannot experience the power of these blessings if our hearts and when our hearts do not rejoice in what God calls blessings. Blessings. The challenge of this list is to examine our hearts and compare notes with your list of blessings and see if if these things are true blessings or if you really consider them as a burden. The paradox of the value of the kingdom, of the values of the kingdom, is that the closer we get to God, the more we realize how far we still have to go. And the farther we are from God, the more we feel we are okay. Friends, I wonder this morning in which category do you find yourself? To live out the reign of God in our lives means that we adopt the values of our King. This is the values of the kingdom. It's already 12.10, 12, 12, and I realize I have just a few minutes to talk about the witness of the kingdom. So you listen fast, I'll speak fast, and we'll finish. The values of the kingdom, that was the first part of the introduction, the witness of the kingdom of heaven. Jesus here after talking about the persecution and after talking about the list of values, he gives them a a pretty strong reminder of what is their job in this kingdom and what is their job on earth. And plainly, he gives them three images. An image of a salt, salt of the earth, an image of a city on a hill, an image of a a lamp. And the, the point Jesus wants to draw out is you are the salt of the earth. you are the light of the world. And by using the, the three images of salt, a city on a hill and a light of a, a, light of a lamp, Jesus is, is giving out two challenges. First, it is impossible to live out the blessings of the kingdom in a private way. When our lives will indeed find joy in the blessings of the kingdom, our lives will radiate these values to those outside. Our lives will give a new taste to those among whom we hang out and those with whom we live. We cannot live lives that are hidden. In other words, Christians cannot be poor in spirit, mournful over sin, meek, hungry, and thirsty for righteousness, merciful, pure in heart, and peacemakers, and do all that in private isolation. These things will show up. These things will have an impact in our lives. And the images that Jesus gives are a clear picture of that. Now, salt, salt is not just about giving taste. Salt in the ancient world was about preserving against decay. In other words, Jesus is saying, You live in a world that is decaying, and you are the salt of that earth. Your job is to try to slow down the decaying process. Friends, when we live in a day and age when Christians are slowly looking more and more like the world than different than the world, it's going to be very hard to give taste and to, to preserve the decaying process. Notice Jesus' concern with the salt. His concern with the salt is, but if the salt loses its saltiness. How? shall it retrieve it. It is good for nothing. When the witness to the kingdom is no longer clear in our lives, we start tasting more like the world. We start feeling more like the world. And therefore, we're no longer able to preserve the world from decay. Friends, the purpose of the salt is to fight deterioration. And therefore, it must not itself deteriorate. A few years ago, at a national convention of a religious organization the administration of the hotels found out that that weekend, while the conference was going on, they had the greatest number of requests for adult movies and pornographic sites. What does that say? What does that say about the church? What does it say when when our courts are experiencing the same number of requests of divorces from Christians as from non-Christians. How can we have a voice in a world? How can, we, how can we really make an impact? And of course, the accusations of others that the church is full of hypocrites does have oftentimes some real evidence to it because we seem to be in an age and a, and a time when the church lives more and more like the world rather than separate from the world. And Jesus' concern is, If the salt shall lose its saltiness, it is good for nothing. But, folks, there's hope. Because the second and third imagery Jesus gives, the the images Jesus gives uh, drive the point in a different direction. He says, A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Notice, if the salt can lose its saltiness, the city on a hill cannot. Are these images contradictory? No. But they're pointing to the reality that some live more like a salt that loses saltiness and others like a city on a hill jesus is in fact saying that those who are true christians those who are true citizens of the kingdom of heaven will have an impact a city on a hill cannot go unnoticed the question is do we live our lives more in the category of being a salt that loses its saltiness or more like a city on a hill that question shows what is the n- real nature of our christian lives friends jesus called not only the disciples but long ago the people of israel in isaiah 49 the passage was read earlier in the, in the service today god says i will make you a light for the nations a light for the gentiles that you may bring my salvation to the ends of the earth and now jesus tells these disciples you are that light. Jesus is, is fulfilling the prophecy of Isaiah and, and, and asking and saying, the people of the kingdom, the people who are under my reign will be witnesses of my kingdom. How? By displaying the values of the kingdom. But notice how verse 16 ends. It's not just v- displaying the values of the kingdom in some sort of spiritual f- sense. It's a very tangible display of the values God, Jesus says men will see your good deeds and they will praise the Father in heaven. Friends, at the end of the day, the test of whether or not we truly carry the values of the kingdom in our hearts is if these values affect our daily lives, our deeds, and our actions. That is a true test of our religion. I want to I question and ask you this morning, my friend, is your life in your home, at your workplace, attracting people around you to know about Christ because of the way you live your life? Are they asking you or making comments, why is this man different? What's different about this person? The values of the kingdom, friends, when they're truly lived in our lives, will bring a light to the nations. But this can only be done if Christ is indeed living in us. Let us pray. Father, we thank you that you sent Jesus Christ to earth to give us a picture of the true blessings of the kingdom of heaven and a a picture of of how how those values can be lived out. Father, we recognize that we do not have the resources to live these values on our own strength. There's no way, Father. So, Lord, we come to you, we ask, we humble ourselves before you, and we ask, Father, have mercy on us. Father, fill us with a sense of your righteousness. Fill us with a a hunger and thirst for your righteousness. Fill us with a desire for you. Fill us with a desire for Christ. Father, we we renounce our own interests. We give up our own desires in order that the life of Christ, that the light of of the kingdom of heaven might shine through us. Lord Jesus, we pray that we would be the salt of the earth, that we would be the light of of the world, but not because of us only because of the Christ who lives in us. Father, we pray that you would make this church a beacon to the kingdom of heaven. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen.